Welcome. You're listening to the Camino Church Podcast. This is Lessons with Pastor Steve Sellers. Every week, our host will dive deep into Scripture, giving you a convenient way to stay in the Word of God. Whether you're mopping your floors on a Saturday morning or sitting on a beach enjoying a well-deserved vacation, we're glad you're here and we're glad you're listening. Let's get started. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, I am grateful that you have joined us again for another podcast as we continue on through the parables of Jesus. And I think we have a good one today. It is a parable of prayer and God and how God uh, responds to prayer. Uh, it is commonly known as the friend at midnight. And I think it's a good one, and I think you'll find it very interesting. There are a few things that happen in here that may have caused you question or pause, and we'll try to answer those as best we can or give you some ideas about how to answer them. And of course, we'll look at what is that truth that we find in this parable based on its first century setting, and then how do we bring that forward. We are in the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 11, and we're going to be in verses 1 through 13. So make sure you have your Bible ready so you can follow through. If your scripture happens to be a hardbound version, then you can make some notes or have some scratch paper, or if you can do that digitally as well. It's always helpful to have those reference notes to go back to. So let's take a look at it and get going. This is a good one. Luke 11, starting in verse 1, it says, He was praying, he being Jesus, of course. He was praying in a certain place, and after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day your daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone indebted to us and do not bring us to the time of trial. Now, already this sounds familiar to us, or at least it should, because it is a version of the Lord's Prayer. It is not the version you find in Matthew. This version is a little bit different. It's clearly been shortened. Uh, And that doesn't mean that uh, necessarily Matthew and Luke are recalling the same event. They could be, uh, or it could be uh, another event that they have recalled. Uh, And that happens in Scripture, that you get the same uh, similar story, parable, uh, or, or event recalled, and it's told from two different perspectives. In this particular case, because you have one of the disciples asking specifically to be taught how to pray, and that's also how Matthew leads into it, I think we're very safe saying here that this is the same event. So then our next question is, well, why does Luke recall it differently than Matthew? Um, Luke is probably using some of Matthew's sources. He may be using Matthew as a source. But for whatever reason, Luke has decided to capture this particular version of the Lord's Prayer in a different manner uh, than Matthew did. doesn't mean it's any more or any less true. Uh, They are trying to capture concepts here. They they have, if you will, an agenda, uh, and that's a positive agenda. And that agenda is to share the good news, the, the life of the good news through Jesus Christ, and then... Of course, the theology of the good news is in terms of salvation. So they may not recall things exactly the same way. 
what matters is, is this, this is what leads us into this parable. It is in response to this particular lesson that Jesus has just given the disciples. So clearly, uh, what he is going to illustrate in the parable is related to prayer. He has taught them how to pray. Now, I think what we're going to get, instead of the structure of the prayer, more as is the intent of the prayer, right? Now that you know the format of your prayer, so how do you present it? You know, what, what is the attitude, if you will? And, and in this case, I think it's going to be what is the intensity. I think we're going to find is the answer. Uh, this is a parable known as a how much more parable. And you'll see that when we get to the very end of it in verse 13. It's basically Jesus offering up an example to people. And he's saying if, if this example is true for an earthly illustration, then how much truer will it be with God in the mix? I think that's a real cool thing that he's doing there. So um, when you want to read, if you want to read the bits and pieces of this that are, that are in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 6, Verses 9 through 15, you'll get, again, a similar version of the model prayer, even though it is an expanded version. And then in Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 7, you're going to get a little bit of a similar version to some of the language that Luke will use in this parable about asking, seeking, and knocking. But it's important to know that this particular parable, as we have at Luke, this is the only place it's located in Scripture. So it is a parable very specific to Luke and, and no one else. So let's jump into the parable itself, uh, and let's see where it takes us. This is good. Verse 5, And he said to them, Suppose, saying to them, the disciples, Suppose one of you has a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, for a friend of mine has arrived, and I have nothing to set before him. Now, let's stop here. Let's take a look at a few things. Uh, first of all, you've got someone going to their neighbor at midnight. Now, I don't know about y'all, but if my neighbors came over to my house at midnight, there's a real good chance that I'm not answering the door, that I'm calling the police first or something like that. It's not something that we do in today's culture. Uh, we are actually very leery of people coming to our doors uh, in, in our context today anytime after the sun goes down. But that is not true in the first century. Uh, I think it's important to understand what is happening here, and that is you've got uh, a person or a family, and a friend has come to visit with them. And that friend has arrived really late at night, about midnight, uh, and, uh, and they are offering, going to their neighbor to, to ask for some bread to offer it to this friend. Contextually, culturally, here's what's happening. It is not at all unusual for people to arrive early in the morning or late at night at a household. You see, in the first century, especially in the Holy Land and the area of Israel, much of the travel, or for that matter, really anywhere um, in, in that part of the world, Travel occurred in the cooler parts of the day. So people did not travel in the middle of the day. It was way too hot. And if you've ever been to Israel, in, in, in the part of Galilee where Jesus spent quite a bit of time, you know, it's, it's beautiful, it's lush, still very hot. And if you go to the southern part of Israel, it's all desert. And you're definitely not traveling uh, a lot during the middle of the day. 
Not only that, you're traveling from site to site. And what I mean by that is you're either traveling from town to town or source of water to source of water, and then you stop because you're not going to carry but so much provision with you when you travel through the desert, and you can't uh, risk getting caught stranded. So it is not unusual for a friend who is traveling to show up at midnight. It would be very well understood and, and very well accepted. So that's, so we understand that. The second thing is then why does this friend go next door, uh, this neighbor go next door and ask for three loaves of bread to feed their friends? Well, there's, there's two things here. One is the concept of hospitality. Hospitality is a big deal uh, in, in Palestinian culture and still is today. I uh, have been to Israel twice, and in both cases, when we went to our hotel for the day, we were always fed a full meal, no matter what time we arrived. So I remember the second time I traveled especially, we did not uh, arrive into Tel Aviv until about 8 or 8.30 at night. We, of course, go through customs, security, all these things, and we eventually get our ho- to our hotel, which was kind of on the outskirts of Tel Aviv, about 10 p.m. or so. And we walk in and walk into the dining room, and there is this full spread buffet. I mean, there are staff who are there waiting on us. There is all kinds of food. I, it was far more food than we can eat. But the point is, is that it symbolizes that hospitality concept, and that would have been true uh, in the first century. People would not have accepted you into their home without offering you the comforts of their home. So one of the things that we, that we can assume then is that this particular neighbor who, who is being visited is out of bread. And so they're going next door uh, to ask for some. Why? Why would they go next door necessarily? Well, in the first century, you're dealing with small homes. Um, they're very close together. There may be three feet between two homes, uh, if there's a, a walkway or, or, or a roadway, if you will, some kind of passageway, there may be six feet between two homes or maybe seven, something to that effect, but there's not a lot of space. So everybody's tight, especially in a town, mostly in a town. They're very tight. They're very confined. Uh, their houses are not very big, and their cooking is done in a room that would have been at least been vented if not open to the air. Uh, my wife and I had the wonderful opportunity uh, about a week ago to, to go on vacation. We wanted to go somewhere where we'd never been before, uh, and we went to New Mexico here in the United States, which was just fantastic. Such different topography than we're used to, beautiful landscapes, amazing hiking, horseback riding, all those kinds of things. And as we hiked around, uh, we had the opportunity to come across um, Pueblo uh, villages from the past. No one living there now, but the remnants of that. And we were able to actually crawl into the mountainside, this limestone, sandstone mountainside, where uh, it's easy to dig out a cave, if you will, because that limestone and sandstone, the water erodes it very easily. It is, it is not dense. Uh, it is easy to kind of erode away, cut away, which, by the way, would also be the primary soil, especially in the deserts, but even in the Galilee area of uh, New, of uh, Israel. 
it is limestone and sandstone, and there are lots of natural caves there. So it would be very similar format of how uh, some of the folks would have lived in Israel as the Pueblo Indians did here in the United States uh, long, long, long ago at the birth of our nation or prior to the birth of our modern nation. But when we walked into those Pueblo caves, you could see along the roof line this black soot. I mean, it was just kind of thick uh, onto, onto the ceiling and the walls around it. And what it was was from the smoke where they had cooked inside the caves. But then when you looked around that ceiling, you also saw these holes that they had dug out that protruded all the way out to the outside, and it's how the smoke was released into the air. So think about that in terms of these small homes uh, in ancient Israel that would have been made of a type of block made out of probably sandstone or limestone, or they would have been built out of rocks. Uh, they would not have had window, glass windows. They would have been open-air windows with a shutter, uh, an, a wooden door maybe, maybe not even a door, depending on, on their uh, financial status, their wealth status at that time. But they would have had a hole in the top of that one room where they would have had the fire that cooked food. So every day you can imagine uh, the women of these homes who primarily did the cooking, of course, and they are cooking this bread every morning to eat that day. And mostly they made it for a day, maybe two days, uh, but they're not making it for a long time. They're not making a lot at one time because they can't preserve it as well. So they're going to make that bread for a day. And can you imagine the smoke rising up through the roof and along with that, uh, the smell the odor of that fresh baked bread. Now, I don't know about y'all, but if you ever walk into a restaurant or a home where they've just baked bread, man, that is the most comfortable feeling. That smell just brings back, for me, wonderful memories of growing up in my house when my mom baked bread or going to my grandparents' house and fresh baked bread had been done there. It's just such a comforting thing. So the neighbors would have smelled each other's bread being baked. So this person... Uh, this guy who has got this visitor coming over, he knows his neighbors have bread. This is not a shock. They baked bread that day, and he's like, hmm, I know they made some bread. Let me check. And he knocks on the door, of course, at midnight uh, to ask for bread. So that gets us kind of kind of, where we are at the end of verse 6 when he says that, well, the friend has arrived and I have nothing to set before him, which, by the way, would have, if he didn't get that resolved, would have resulted in tremendous shame for his family. Yes, they did not know the friend was going to arrive that night, but nonetheless, they would have been shamed as a family, and that's more than an emotional thing like it is for us. It could have impacted that family from a cultural perspective, uh, from a financial perspective, all these kinds of things. You, you did not want shame in the first century. You wanted honor. So now his honor is at stake, and that's important because I think it plays into the concept of prayer. If we are trying to pray to uphold the honor that we carry on behalf of God, then God, we're praying in the will of God, and God will be, be attentive to that. So let's take a look at verse 7. It says, and he answers, the, the neighbor here, he answers from within, Do not bother me. The door has already been locked, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot give up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything, because he is his friend, 
at least because of his persistence, he will get up and give him whatever he needs. So as this guy knocks on his neighbor's door, the neighbor says, look, I'm already in bed. And we may think, well, he just doesn't want to be inconvenienced. But it's more than that. Uh, in the first century, a lot of your homes, especially for poor Jewish families, are not big homes. Um, if they're very poor, they may only have a one- or two-room house. Uh, and again, what I mean by room is it's got a divider rock wall or something or maybe a curtain, but it is not a well-laid-out home. Uh, and if they are a little bit um, more affluent, though fairly poor, uh, they may have two or three rooms. But, but listen to this. In one room, they're going to have where they cook, where they hang out, where they talk, where they do everything but sleep in one room. And then in the other room, they sleep. So when he says his kids are in bed with him, it's because that's how everybody slept. Everybody slept together in most of these families. So He's, his kids go to bed, he and his wife go to bed, and they are all in bed together. Now, first of all, that doesn't sound very good to me, <laughs> but that's my modern cultural perspective. But when, once they get in bed, then once they get up, then all of a sudden the kids are up, and you know how hard it is to get kids to go back to bed, to calm them down. You got someone knocking on the door. It's not a good scenario for this guy's neighbor. So he says, I, I really, I just don't want to get up right now. Well, not only... Is it an issue with the children? But if they had animals and they're in the city, then they don't probably have a stable. The animals actually are pulled inside for the night. And they, in essence, uh, sleep the animals toward the front door. And there's actually a practical reason for that. Uh, if someone tried to break into their homes, which would not be difficult given the basic nature of their homes, then... <laughs> person trying to break in, walks in the house, falls over the donkey, and then everybody's awake and can resolve it, as opposed to being able to sneak around. So imagine what it could take, potentially, for this neighbor to get up and get to the door. It's a huge effort. And again, it's at midnight. And what Jesus says at the end of this parable, and this is the great part, is that even though he will not get up because he, and give him anything because he is a friend, at least... Because of his persistence, he will get up and give him whatever he needs. So Jesus is saying, they're friends, and that may not cause him to get up, but because he's persistent, he will get up and he will meet his needs. Now, that word for persistence uh, in the Greek is shamelessness. You've got to be shameless in what you ask for. Now, we're going to caveat that in a little bit because I don't want it to get carried away and think that we can absolutely ask for anything, and just because we're persistent, it's going to be given to us. I remember when I was a kid, I prayed for a bicycle. Riley, I, I'm, Riley, I prayed for a bicycle, right? So here I am in the house going, I'm sure it was after church one day when I was told by some teacher or minister you know, pray for whatever in God's name and it'll be given to you. And so I went home and said, well, Lord, in your name, I want a bicycle. So I prayed for that bicycle and, and I was standing in our kitchen. Our kitchen had a door that went out to the carport and, and I prayed for it and then I opened the door to the carport slowly and I'm going, there's going to be a bicycle there. I know there is. I'm praying. I'm a good guy. There's no bicycle. Closed the door and I said, well, maybe I'm not praying hard enough. So I prayed again, opened the door. There's no bicycle. Clearly, 
there's no bicycle because that's not what it means uh, to, to pray persistently, especially when you're supposed to pray in the will of God. And we'll cover that again in a minute. Jesus' point here is that this man is doing exactly what he should do. He is going next door to save his honor, to show hospitality to this friend who has been on this long journey, and he is going to be persistent until he gets it. I think that is the message. So let's, let's kind of pick up in verse 9. It says, So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Search, your version or translation may say seek, and you will find knock, and the door will be open for you. Now I want you to, I want to go back and cover that again because I want you to see that movement. Ask is the first statement. That is the least amount of commitment you have to make to request anything. Just ask for it. Right? You've probably heard people say, well, can't hurt to ask because all you're going to get is a yes or a no. So Jesus says your first step is to ask. I say to you, ask, and then it will be given to you. But then there's another step in case the asking doesn't work. Search or seek, and you will find it. That requires more effort to go searching. But then the final one takes the most effort because it requires you to engage with someone or to confront someone knock, and the door will be opened for you. Now, clearly that verse points out that all three can work, and I believe that's true, obviously. But I think that progression in what Luke is trying to give us is there for a purpose. He's trying to make a statement to note that these verbs uh, all show this kind of greater commitment each time you go to God. I think the other thing that they show is if you break down that verb tense, they are all a continuous action tense of the verb, which to me denotes persistence. So it's not ask and stop. It's ask and ask, keep asking. Almost like as you are asking or as you are searching, as you are knocking. It is not a one and done kind of thing, but it requires a fair amount of effort to, to make it happen. And then in verse 10, we get to, for everyone who asks, receives, and everyone who searches, finds. And for everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. Persistence ensures a response, is what Jesus seems to be saying here, right? Is there anyone among you who, if your child asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead of a fish? Or if a child asks for an egg, will give a scorpion? Now, on first reading... That just seemed weird, right? Ask for a fish and get a snake. How, how do you get a snake instead of a fish? Well, if you look at the fish species of Galilee in ancient times and even up to today, there's actually uh, a fish that's kind of like an eel um, uh, that has the shape of an eel but still has some of the aspects of a fish. It is not one that you would want to... to to fish for. It is not one good to eat, I don't believe, uh, and it may not be one you even want to handle. But if a child is asking for a fish, and the implication would be to eat, then why would a parent give that child the one that looks like a snake? I think that's what's being said here. At least that's kind of my take on it. Then he says, or if a child asks for an egg, we'll give a scorpion. So now we've gone from something that, okay, almost makes sense to something that seems to make no sense at all, um, asking for an egg and getting a scorpion. 
and I found some pictures of this, so uh, I feel feel comfortable that this is pretty legitimate. But uh, when scorpions are cornered, or they are concerned, or or they are frightened, or or in, they're put in kind of a position uh, of defense, they ball up. How about that? Uh, and there are pictures you can you can check it out some on the internet that they almost look like an egg, and so I think that's the analogies here that Jesus is using. His point, of course, is if we who are worldly people, we're not even you know divine, we're not holy like God is by any stretch of the imagination, but if we as worldly people would do the best we could and not give bad to our children. Then you get to verse 13. This is the how much more, right? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, and by evil, what Jesus means is we're not necessarily morally evil. We are unholy. We are marred by sin. We don't make the best decisions. I think that's what he's saying. Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more? Remember, this is a how much more parable. How much more? Will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And I think that's the point of the parable. If you ask for the right things, God will answer it in the right ways. Just be persistent. Persevere. Ask from your heart. Now, there's another part of this that's not covered in this parable, but I think it's true for prayer. Um, And I think, if I remember correctly, it's in John Chapter 15, I'm going to jump there real quickly to see if I'm right. Gosh, I hope I am. John chapter 15, verse 7. Yeah, this is it. This is the um, uh, parable of Jesus as the true vine. This is a great parable as well. But in John 15, 7, he says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask for whatever you wish and it will be done for you. That's the caveat to all this. When we go to God in prayer, we should already be abiding in Jesus Christ if we're going to ask boldly and we're going to ask shamelessly and we're going to present our needs and what we think we should be praying for toward God. If we're abiding in Jesus Christ, guess what? We already know what God wants us to pray for. You know, too many times we use prayer as a wish list. God help me. God, I need. God, this. God, what, 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 what. Um, even, even when we do it for other people, right? Um, there was a, a lady in a previous church of mine, an, uh, an older lady, who had this great bit of wisdom that, that kind of struck me, I thought was fascinating. Uh, and she was commenting when we prayed for the sick and how we, you know, we would pray for folks to be well, especially if, they're, if it looks like they're really struggling with their health, they may die. Oh, Lord, please don't let them go. You know, And she made this comment to me, and she did it to other people too, but she said, you know what, Steve? We've prayed more people out of heaven than we've prayed out of hell. What a great statement. We're spending so much time praying for the people that we love because of our own grief. Why aren't we praying more for the people who are lost? The people who we love, I mean, when I die, I'm not... I'm not ready to die, I guess. Uh, I love my life, uh, and and I have great ministry and opportunity, but when I die, I go from life to life. 
And the good news about that is, is that while death may be painful and the fleshly may be gone, what is better on the other side is so much better, I shouldn't worry about it. But what about those who are not saved? They should be receiving the perseverance of our prayers. So I think we have to pray with that in mind. We have to have an abiding relationship with Jesus, then pray in persistence, pray for the things that we know that God wants in his will, and that will always be given to us. What a great parable. We look forward to joining you next time uh, when we tackle another one of these. Gosh, this has been fun. I hope you'll join us again next time. Thanks a lot. Thank you for tuning into Lessons with Pastor Steve Sellers. Check back soon on all podcasting platforms for the next available episode. This series is produced by Riley Moncrief for Camino Church. To learn more about our church, like us on Facebook at Camino Church or visit us online at CaminoChurch.com. We'll see you next time.